Adoption is beautiful. Adoption is a picture of God's sovereign grace. Uh, What is adoption? Adoption is a free choice and legal act of taking a child that is not your own and making them your own in order to love, care for, and grant them the privileges and blessings of heirs. Christina and I have a friend, Eric, who's an assistant pastor in a Presbyterian church in West Virginia, and uh, Eric's a foster dad. Last year, Eric adopted an eight-year-old boy. I saw a picture of a wooden plaque that Eric gave his son on adoption day, and uh, below each of the three dates were one of these three phrases, you were born, God placed you in my home, you became my son forever, and then the boy's name at the bottom. You became my son forever. Adoption is a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace. Sadly, many people think of their salvation in terms of employer and employee. Do the work and meet God's expectations and you're all good. That's not the gospel. The employer and employee metaphor is a false gospel. Salvation is not compensation. Salvation is inheritance. Adopted sons are entitled to God's inheritance. Now, I know that some of you uh, wrestle deeply with the mysterious doctrine of God's election. And maybe adoption will be what shows you the beauty of election. Election seems unfair, calloused, maybe even malicious to many, but a precise doctrine of adoption reveals the love, compassion, and kindness of God in election. Paul uses the doctrine of adoption to clear up the law and gospel confusion in Galatia, which was causing big problems. Paul used adoption to remind the Galatians who they were in Christ in order to woo them back to the true gospel. Now, keep in mind that the Galatians were deserting God by turning to a different gospel, a false gospel, as if they were under some kind of weird spell. Works were being added to faith for justification, most notably circumcision and dietary laws. See, bad legalistic theology confused the churches and encouraged Not only bad thinking, but bad living. So in order to rescue the Galatians from shipwrecking their faith, Paul gave them this precise argument. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is an argument for the sufficiency, supremacy, beauty, and glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, the reason that works righteousness is so bad is it fails to exalt Christ alone, and instead it exalts man alongside of Christ, and therein is its failure, and therein is its danger. How do professional athletes get so good? You watch these people, you're like, unbelievable. They practice fundamentals so that they become instinctive, muscle memory. Well, then what do pros do when they fall into a slump? Well, they go back to the fundamentals and slavishly hone and fine-tune them. Galatians may seem repetitive to you, for some of you. But like professional athletes, we must repeatedly go back to justification by faith alone and fine-tune our understanding of it. Even if we understand justification, basically, we have not mastered it. 
And our tendency is to get sloppy with the fundamentals of our faith. So we need to fine-tune our understanding. Referring to Galatians 4, uh, scholar William Hendrickson asked, why is it that one entire chapter is added to drive home the same central point, the sinner's inferiority under the law? So Hendrickson, he sensed Paul's repetition, and Hendrickson then answered the question. The answer is probably this, that the apostle loved his Galatians so very much that he wished to leave no stone unturned in order to deliver them from their grievous error. Paul understood that bad theology leads to bad living. Paul saw how a false gospel was defiling the church that he loved, and so he took them back to the law and back to the gospel, including justification by faith alone, in order to rescue them from a shipwrecked faith and life. They needed precision in the fundamentals in order to live godly lives to God's glory and their good. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the great doctrine of adoption to see from yet another glorious angle why it must be justification by faith alone. First, for a time, a true son is just like a slave. Now, Paul builds on the phrase, heirs according to promise, and continues in chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Okay, so a son is the rightful heir to his father's estate, but he's only a child. He's technically owner, or you could say lord of everything, uh, with authority, position, entitlement, even ownership, but not yet. Not yet. He's only a kid, and so he's kind of like a slave. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The son's guardians and managers uh, run the kid's life telling him where to be all the time and what to do, and even manage his future inheritance, but it's all for his good. But it's only until that date that is set by his father when he receives freedom and he receives his rightful inheritance. Then his sonship is shown in his possession of the inheritance. Paul was helping the Galatians know what it was like for God's people to be under the Mosaic law in the Old Covenant. Paul was building upon chapter 3, verses 24 through 29. In the Old Covenant, all right, the Jews were under the guardian of God's law. God's law ordered their life, told them what to do, kept them in line. The law was that great disciplinarian, but also the, their protector. But, but that was only until Christ arrived confirming justification is by faith alone. When Christ arrived, uh, 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 arrived and faith came, the law was no longer the guardian. Those under the law, both Jews and Gentiles alike, reached maturity as adopted sons in Christ Jesus. And by belonging to Christ and being Abraham's true offspring, they were heirs according to promise. So it's not like Old Testament believers were slaves, 
Okay, they were adopted sons. They were heirs through faith in God's promise of Christ. They were free by grace alone through faith alone, but Christ had not come yet. And so they were properly under the guardian of the law for a time until Christ came, a time set by God the Father. Secondly, to live under the law is slavery. Paul continues in verse 3, In the same way, so he's drawing from this analogy, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It seems as if Paul is saying that Israel lived in the old covenant under the law or elementary principles of the world with all of its outward ceremonies. The law was the basics. The ABCs, the elementary school teaching to prepare God's people for Christ. And those elementary principles were for a time until Christ brought the PhD. All right, so in this sense, Old Testament saints, they were free, but they were living under a type of bondage to the Mosaic law. As the Galatians were returning to the law, just wanting to go back, They were digressing from graduate school back to elementary school. Why would you want to do that? Scholar Timothy George commented, For the Galatian Christians now to revert back to the works of the law as a basis for salvation would be more than a retrogression from higher form of knowledge to rudimentary learning from PhDs to ABCs. No, such a reversion would be nothing less than backsliding into cosmic captivity to the demon lords and sham gods of their pagan past. The ABCs of the law were to prepare God's people for the PhD of Christ. To go back to elementary school would be useless because of what the Galatians knew of Christ. That would be returning to slavery. So saints, as as sons and heirs of God, why digress to the law for justification when you have Christ for justification? Who wants to go back? To live under the law is to be a slave. Brothers and sisters, you are not slaves. You are sons. You are daughters. Heirs of God himself. Do you know how your adoption came to be? We were slaves to the law, slaves to impurity and lawlessness, slaves to sin and death, slaves to various passions and pleasures, slaves of corruption. How did slaves become sons? That's worth thinking about. Listen very carefully to Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. There is a strong connection here to Galatians 4. Listen to these beautiful words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has 
blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, our Father predestined us for adoption to Himself. Our adoption was according to the purpose of our Father's will and to the praise of our Father's glorious grace. Our Father lavished His grace upon us according to His purpose. And this was our Father's plan for the fullness of time. To then believe or to act like works of the law contribute even a little bit to justification before God is to disregard the kindness of the Father in adopting slaves as sons. Saints, our adoption proves that works of the law are powerless to make us sons. All we have done is receive God's kindness through faith which God has provided us. God as your employer is not gospel. It's not good news. It's not gospel. It's slavery. It's condemnation under the law. But God's free grace in adoption is good news of freedom. Next, we receive adoption as sons because of our Father's provision of redemption in His Son. We receive adoption as sons because of the Father's provision of redemption in His Son. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. The timing of the Father was perfect. Beloved, Paul is showing you the sufficiency, supremacy, beauty, and glory of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He's showing you that God's Son alone did what the law could never do. When you read, when the fullness of time had come, you must understand that God planned redemption before the world began, a plan to adopt you, a plan to prosper you as heirs of the kingdom. How would God do it? Paul wrote, God sent forth His Son. That's big. Okay? First, God the Father has a son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In verse 4, Paul used the Greek word ex apostello. Ex means from, as in origin. And apostello means to send out on a mission. So if God sent forth his son who was who was then born of woman, it assumes the son's existence in eternity with the father. It, 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 it assumes the son's existence before the son's birth. Because God the father sent God the son. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus said about himself, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you know how big of a statement that was? Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. At the perfect time, 
God provided us his beloved and eternal son. He sent his son from eternity into time and space on a rescue mission. God the Father sent God the Son to be born of woman. Here, woman refers not so much to Mary, but to the fact that the Son of God was born of a female human womb. God took on human flesh. God graciously promised in Genesis 3.15 that the woman would have offspring. In fact, a son who would redeem from the curse and triumph over evil. And God sent forth his son to fulfill that promise at the beginning of time, born of woman. Paul's phrase tells us about the person of Jesus Christ. He is the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, divine in the fullest sense, and yet He took on human nature via His birth of woman. So Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, has two natures. One divine, one human. One person, two natures. He must be so to redeem us. True man with a nature like ours to pay for our sins. Righteous man to be a pure and acceptable substitute for our sins. True God to possess the power and divine nature to bear the wrath of God for us and actually obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Our redemption rests solely on God sending forth His Son through the womb of a woman and born under the law. Without the incarnation and the virgin birth, there is no redemption or adoption for us. God's Son was born under the law. Someone who's born under the law is subject to the demands of the law. God's law demands moral perfection. Do it all or die. Every nuance of the law must be followed exactly or condemnation ensues. All those laws that we read in the Torah today that seem so obscure and weird needed to be meticulously followed. So for the Son of God to be born under the law is for the Son of God to be subject to the law. Jesus, think about Jesus. He was a covenant child. Born into a Jewish family under the burden and under the weight of the Mosaic law. And he bore the burden with perfect righteousness. It is because Adam and all humanity in Adam failed to obey God's law that the Son of God had to come and subject himself to the law in order to be our righteous substitute and sacrifice to redeem us from the curse of the law. Here, here's why Jesus, and not our works, is our righteousness, our justification. Paul wrote in Romans 2, verses 12 through 13, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Friends, you and I have heard we have not done. Jesus got it done. He obeyed every single bit of God's law. 
Adam failed, the son succeeded. Israel failed, the son succeeded. We failed, the son succeeded. So Jesus is the only doer of the law. The only human being who under the law actually achieved justification by works. That's why it is imperative that we stand firm on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and that we preach it with unwavering conviction because the supremacy of Jesus Christ is at stake, as is our redemption and our adoption in Him. Why the incarnation? Why the virgin birth? You know of these things. You've heard of them since you were little probably. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Brothers and sisters, we have no redemption or adoption without the incarnation and the virgin birth. You lose everything if Joseph was Jesus' actual father. You lose everything. This is all worthless. Verse 4 is a big statement, and Paul adds to it, verse 5, in order to redeem. The fullness of time was about redemption. God sending forth his only son was about redemption. The eternal son of God being born of woman under the law was about redemption. What is redemption? Well, it relates to slavery. A slave's freedom could be purchased through a payment to the slave owner. Those born under the law, they had no means of payment. They couldn't purchase their freedom. You kidding? They were impoverished. So God sent forth his only son as the payment. God provided redemption for his incarcerated, enslaved children in his own son. God demanded the payment, and God gave the payment. Well, what did Christ's work of redemption achieve? Our adoption. We are God's children only because Christ achieved our redemption. Uh, According to the Father's eternal plan of redemption, the Son bought us with His blood. That's why we are sons of God. Not only is Christ alone our redemption, but Christ alone is the means of our adoption. Now, maybe in reading this text, you're getting a little uncomfortable with the term sons. Ladies, here's why you should rejoice in that word. One, God chose the word. We could stop there. But two, and this is big, don't miss this. In the ancient world, only sons received inheritance, the inheritance. So when Paul uses the term sons to address all of the Galatian church, The believers in Galatia, men and women alike, Jews and Gentiles alike, slave and free alike, he is saying that all believers are adopted children entitled to the inheritance. Ladies, you are included in the term sons. In the term sons. We shouldn't gender neutralize scripture because it's not historically or linguistically accurate, not intellectually honest, and you lose important contours of the entire biblical text. God says sons, and that's not mis... How do you even say this word? I put in fancy words, and I don't even know what they are. 
Misogynistic, it took me a while, but I got it. Misogynistic, we hate women, that's what that means. It's a divine blessing, including women who believe. That's Paul's point. It's a good word. Keep it, sons. Brothers and sisters, please don't miss that we receive adoption as sons. Our rights, privileges, blessings, responsibilities, and obligations as sons of God are received entirely by grace through faith. Uh, That's why it's so offensive to suggest that law-keeping or your own inherent goodness is why you're a son or a daughter of God. It's offensive. Many people today, they love the idea of adoption and they just assume everybody's adopted. Everybody except maybe people like Hitler. Okay? We're all adopted sons of God. Okay? And yet they don't understand the connection between adoption and redemption. They assume that they are adopted children of God and yet they are still enslaved to the law. And it's a sad story for many who wrongly believe that they're adopted. Redemption and adoption come together. Why would God adopt us slaves? Well, in Rome, some adult men were adopted in order for the father to pass the inheritance on to them. Perhaps there was no biological heir. And so adoption allowed Romans to pass their inheritance on to an adopted heir. Saints, your adoption as sons is directly connected to verse 29, heirs according to promise. You got to get this. God wanted to express the divine love and kindness of his heart by giving you an unfathomable inheritance, the inheritance of his kingdom, all for his glory. So he redeemed you and he adopted you. Yes, he adopted even you, dear believer, the slave with nothing. So that you could be the son who inherits everything. This is to the praise of what? His glorious grace. Sons and daughters of God, when you believe that you are an heir, your life will be very, very different than the world. Next, along with the Son of God, we adopted sons cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 6 is the key to your true identity and assurance of salvation. How do you know that you've been redeemed and adopted? You know because from within you, the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father. That's how you know. Just as God sent forth His Son, God has also sent forth, same word, the Spirit of His Son into your heart. So what does Abba mean? Well, contrary to popular opinion, as I think we've all probably heard, Abba does not actually mean Daddy. Abba is Aramaic for father. Now, Paul's using two languages, Aramaic and Greek, to refer to the father, maybe for emphasis, like double double it up, Uh, maybe to show regard to both Jew and Gentile. But Abba is not childish babble. If Paul wanted to say daddy, there were good Greek options that he could have used. He didn't use them. Abba was a familiar title for father, certainly not formal, but it was certainly a mix of both reverence and intimacy. There was a solemnity to Abba, and adults back in the day commonly used the term. 
American Bible scholar Dr. Michael Heiser said, quote, reducing the term to childish, though affectionate, prattle guts it of important interpretive nuances, end of quote. So Abba is filled with both affection and reverence. Affection and reverence. Understanding Abba as daddy may in our day promote approaching God too casually. Abba promotes the transcendence and holiness of God while also promoting affection and intimacy. In Gethsemane, before the cross, Jesus prayed with utmost reverence and affection, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Sobering, intimate, affectionate. You know you're redeemed and adopted when, like Jesus in Gethsemane, the spirit of Jesus from within you cries out, Abba, Father. It happens in every adopted child without exception. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Who's crying, Abba, Father? In verse 6, it's the spirit of God's son. An adopted son of God is one within whom the spirit of Jesus dwells and knows God as loving father. Interestingly, Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, So adopted sons of God cry out, Abba, Father, precisely because the spirit of God's son cries, Abba, Father, from within them. So understand, the key to your confidence in your redemption and adoption is the Holy Spirit within you crying out, Abba, Father. And we could add the Holy Spirit working in you to act as God's adopted child in obedience to the Father you love. There is great assurance and comfort in who you really are. If God is your employer, you're not a son. If God is the man upstairs, you're not a son. Don't ever call God the man upstairs. That's blasphemy. Oh, that you would come to know God as your loving heavenly Father, your Abba. You're only an adopted son if you can say about Almighty God, the creator of the universe, with deep awe and deep affection, my dearest Father. You are an adopted son when you come out from under the law and receive the inheritance of your father by faith, confirming it all with a genuine cry of the heart, my Abba, my father, true heirs know God as Abba, father. I really appreciate scholar Timothy George's comment on this. He says, the Holy Spirit is the sign and pledge of our adoption so that by his presence in our hearts, we are truly convinced that God is for us, not against us, that indeed he is our heavenly father. The evidence Paul gave for this wonderful assurance is not that through the spirit we are empowered to do miraculous works, 
receive ecstatic visions, speak in tongues, or any other kind of sensational phenomena. Rather, the first, most basic indication of our adoption is that we have a new form of address for God. The Spirit invites us to join in His invocation, crying, Abba, Father. I know I, Jonathan, am an adopted son of God because throughout my life, the Spirit of Jesus in me has assured me, has increased my confidence through the years in who I truly am and has deepened my loving fellowship with God as my Father. I've come to know more of my Father's provision and blessing and my gratitude and intimacy and obedience to my Father has grown. It's still ugly, but it has grown. Can you say the same? Can, along with Jesus and by the same Spirit, can you cry out with genuine worship, with genuine heartfelt love, Abba, Father? Is that the cry of your heart? If so, then verse 7 is true of you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Or we could say, as J.B. Lightfoot said, through God who adopted you. As in, God did the adopting. I think Paul's words came from the assumption of true repentance in Galatia. Uh, real Christians... Honestly, we get confused sometimes. Don't you get confused sometimes? Scratching your head, what in the world? Where am I? Who am I? What? What is going on? We get confused. We all oh, pretty things, and we go after that, and we forget. But see, they always repent. They always go back to their father. They trust in Christ as their father continues to draw them closer by his grace and by his truth. And I imagine that many in Galatia repented after hearing this, this letter. I think they got something straight and said, no, whoa, whoa, we have really veered here. Let us repent, brothers and sisters, of anything which does not fit us as sons and daughters of God. Saints, the Christian life is not simply about affirming truths written on a page. We must do that. That's important. But the Christian life is so much more. Our redemption unto adoption proves the Christian life in intimate, uh, a relationship, a fellowship, a communion, and a love with the Father. Christ is with us pleading out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Let's get real. Do you view life through the eyes of a slave or as a son? Does your life seem like slavery? Like you've been incarcerated in one spot for years with neither joy nor power to overcome your flesh. If that's you, repent of your sins and guilt, and come quickly to Jesus Christ and trust Him as your righteousness. Trust Him as your redemption. Trust Him as your life and know God as loving Father. The beauty of the gospel is that slaves become sons by grace through faith. So come to Christ in faith. Receive His Spirit by hearing with faith and cry out with genuine awe from the bottom of your heart with the deepest affection, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, You are my Father. I will do as You say, dear Father. You will provide for me, dear Father. 
So let me close with this. I have a special relationship with my brother Chris. Uh, We're nine years apart. I look so much younger. (laughs) Nine years apart, and uh, we're best of friends. And I've looked up to Chris my entire life. When I was little, he tied me. (laughs) This isn't where the tears are coming. This was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) (laughs) You never know what's... See, I know what's coming after this. He he tied me to the inside of the garage door. And then he locked himself out of the garage. And I was scared. And that has nothing to do with this. I just thought you should know that. (laughs) But... Anyway, I, <laughs> I love my brother, and, and having a big brother has been really important to me. Uh, it's been a precious blessing and gift to me, and as much as I love my big brother, Chris, and as much as Chris has done for me, I have another big brother who is way better than Chris. I have a big brother who I worship. I have a big brother who is everything I am not, who came to me and did everything I couldn't do. I have a big brother who gave his life to redeem me from the curse of the law so that I could receive adoption as God's son and receive him as my brother. I have a brother who saw me in the slave market, miserable, poor, and wretched, and my big brother died for me to make sure I became his adopted little brother. I have the best big brother in the world, and his name is Jesus. Is Jesus your big brother? If so, that makes us brothers, sisters, co-heirs. You and I get it all. I get it all. You get it all in Christ our brother. After he rose from the dead, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and he told her, go to my brothers And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Our adoption means we are fellow heirs with our big brother Jesus. Why is our adoption so good? Do you know what it's like to have the Son of God as your big brother? Do you know what it's like for God to be your Father? then you know why adoption is so good. It's it's pretty comforting for adopted children to know they were chosen in order to be loved and cared for. Dear Father, how amazing it is that we can use those terms. We were slaves so burdened and afflicted by your crushing law. And Jesus came and he bought us from the slave market of sin and death. He redeemed us in order to make us sons so that we too could be heirs with him. God, there's no greater gospel than this. The world needs this. We need this. The world gets the Christian faith so wrong and it just feels so bad to see people totally misrepresent what your gospel says. 
And adoption is this beautiful picture of what it's like to be saved by you and to be loved by God. And the reality is, and this is a a tough thing to swallow, not everybody is an adopted child of God. There are a lot of slaves. But God, out there, there are still slaves trapped, incarcerated under the law that actually will be your children. You have foreordained it. You have planned it. Their redemption and their adoption. And so, God, may we have evangelical zeal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our brothers and sisters can come out of slavery and join the family. God, I'm asking that you make Jerusalem church faithful to proclaim the gospel, the law and gospel, so that people can come to know Christ and join this big, awesome, happy family with the awesomest father and the awesomest older brother who are going to care for us forever, and we get to be with you, the Son, the Spirit, forever. So God, do your work as you do it best. Work through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your word, through the sacraments to assure your people, build up your people, God, may the true law and gospel work together to bring people to the feet of Jesus to find themselves loved by a father. Thank you, Father, for being our father. Amen.